Section 26 of The Valley of the Moon by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 2, Chapter 11. With Billy on strike and away doing picket duty, and with the departure of Mercedes and the death of Bert, Saxon was left much to herself in a loneliness that even in one as healthy-minded as she could not fail to produce morbidness. Mary, too, had left, having spoken vaguely of taking a job at housework in Piedmont. Billy could help Saxon little in her trouble. He dimly sensed her suffering, without comprehending the scope and intensity of it. He was too man-practical, and, by his very sex, too remote from the intimate tragedy that was hers. He was an outsider at the best, a friendly onlooker who saw little. To her the baby had been quick and real. It was still quick and real. That was her trouble. By no deliberate effort of will could she fill the aching void of its absence. Its reality became at times an hallucination. Somewhere it still was, and she must find it. She would catch herself on occasion, listening with strained ears for the cry she had never heard, yet which, in fancy, she had heard a thousand times in the happy months before the end. Twice she left her bed in her sleep and went searching, each time coming to herself beside her mother's chest of drawers, in which were the tiny garments. To herself at such moments she would say, I had a baby once, and she would say it aloud as she watched the children playing in the street. One day on the Eighth Street cars, a young mother sat beside her, a crowing infant in her arms. And Saxon said to her, I had a baby once, it died. The mother looked at her startled, half drew the baby tighter in her arms, jealousy, or as in fear. Then she softened and said, You poor thing. Yes, said Saxon, it died. Tears welled into her eyes, and the telling of her grief seemed to have brought relief. But all the day she suffered from an almost overwhelming desire to recite her sorrow to the world, to the paying teller at the bank, to the elderly floor-walker in Salinger's, and to the blind woman, guided by a little boy who played on the concertina, to everyone save the policeman. The police were new and terrible creatures to her now. She had seen them kill the strikers as mercilessly as the strikers had killed the scabs. And unlike the strikers, the police were professional killers. They were not fighting for jobs. They did it as a business. They could have taken prisoners that day in the angle of the front steps and her house, but they had not. Unconsciously, whenever approaching one, she edged across the sidewalk so as to get as far as possible away from him. She did not reason it out. But deeper than consciousness was the feeling that they were typical of something inimical to her and hers. At 8th and Broadway, waiting for her car to return home, the policeman on the corner recognized her and greeted her. She turned white to the lips, and her heart fluttered painfully. It was only Ned Hermanman, fatter, broader-faced, jollier-looking than ever, he had sat across the aisle from her for three terms at school. 
He and she had been monitors together of the composition books for one term. The day the powder works blew up at Pinoli, breaking every window in the school, he and she had not joined in the panic rush for out of doors. Both had remained in the room, and the irate principal had exhibited them from room to room to the cowardly classes, and then rewarded them with a month's holiday from school. And after that Ned Hermanman had become a policeman, and married Lena Hyland, and Saxon had heard they had five children. But in spite of all that, he was now a policeman, and Billy was now a striker. Might not Ned Hermanman some day club and shoot Billy, just as those other policemen clubbed and shot the strikers by her front steps? "'What's the matter, Saxon?' he asked, sick. She nodded and choked, unable to speak, and started to move toward her car, which was coming to a stop. "'I'll help you,' he offered. She shrank away from his hand. "'No, I'm all right,' she gasped hurriedly. "'I'm not going to take it. I've forgotten something.' She turned away dizzily, up Broadway to Ninth. Two blocks along Ninth, she turned down Clay and back to Eighth Street, where she waited for another car. As the summer months dragged along, the industrial situation in Oakland grew steadily worse. Capital everywhere seemed to have selected the city for the battleground with organized labor. So many men in Oakland were out on strike, or were locked out, or were unable to work because of the dependence of their trades on the other tied-up trades, that odd jobs at common labor were hard to obtain. Billy occasionally got a day's work to do, but did not earn enough to make both ends meet, despite the small strike wages received at first, and despite the rigid economy he and Saxon practiced. The table, she set, had scarcely anything in common with that of the first married year. Not alone was every item of cheaper quality, but many items had disappeared. Meat and the poorest was very seldom on the table. Cow's milk had given place to condensed milk, and even the sparing use of the latter had ceased. A roll of butter, when they had it, lasted half a dozen times as long as formerly. Where Billy had been used to drinking three cups of coffee for breakfast, he now drank one. Saxon boiled this coffee an atrocious length of time, and she paid twenty cents a pound for it. The blight of hard times was on all the neighborhood. The families not involved in one strike were touched by some other strike or by the cessation of work in some dependent trade. Many single young men who were lodgers had drifted away, thus increasing the house rent of the families which had sheltered them. Got, said the butcher to Saxon. We working class all suffer together. My wife, she cannot get her teeth fixed now. Pretty soon I go smash broke, maybe. Once when Billy was preparing to pawn his watch, Saxon suggested his borrowing the money from Billy Murphy. I was planning that, Billy answered, only I can't now. I didn't tell you what happened Tuesday night at the Sportin' Life Club. You remember that square-head champion of the United States Navy? Billy was matched with him, 
and it was sure easy money. Billy had him going south by the end of the sixth round, and at the seventh went in to finish him, and then, just as luck, for his trade's idle now, he snaps his right forearm. Of course the square head comes back at him on the jump, and it's good night for Bill. Gee, us Mohiggans are getting our bad luck handed to us in chunks these days. Don't, Saxon cried, shuddering involuntarily. What, Billy asked, with open mouth of surprise. Don't say that word again. Bert was always saying it. Oh, Mohiggans, all right, I won't. You ain't superstitious, are you? No, but just the same, there's too much truth in the word for me to like it. Sometimes it seems as though he was right. Times have changed. They've changed ever since I was a little girl. We crossed the plains and opened up this country, and now we're losing even the chance to work for a living in it. And it's not my fault. It's not your fault. We've got to live well or bad, just by luck, it seems. There's no other way to explain it. It beats me, Billy concurred. Look at the way I worked last year. Never missed a day. I'd want to never miss a day this year. And here I haven't done a tap for weeks and weeks and weeks. Say, who runs this country anyway? Saxon had stopped the morning paper, but frequently Maggie Donahue's boy, who served the Tribune route, tossed an extra on her steps. From its editorials, Saxon gleaned that organized labor was trying to run the country and that it was making a mess of it. It was all the fault of domineering labor, so ran the editorials, column by column, day by day. And Saxon was convinced, yet remained unconvinced. The social puzzle of living was too intricate. The Teamsters' strike, backed financially by the Teamsters of San Francisco and by the allied unions of the San Francisco Waterfront Confederation, promised to be long-drawn, whether or not it was successful. The Oakland harness-washers and stablemen, with few exceptions, had gone out with the Teamsters. The teaming firms were not half-filling their contracts, but the Employers' Association was helping them. In fact, half the Employers' Associations of the Pacific Coast were helping the Oakland Employers' Association. Saxon was behind a month's rent, which, when it is considered that rent was paid in advance, was equivalent to two months. Likewise, she was two months behind in the installments on the furniture. Yet she was not pressed very hard by Salinger's, the furniture dealers. "'We're giving you all the rope we can,' said their collector. "'My order is to make you dig up every cent I can, and at the same time, not to be too hard. Salingers are trying to do the right thing, but they're up against it, too. You've no idea how many accounts like yours they're carrying along. Sooner or later, they'll have to call a halt or get it in the neck themselves. And in the meantime, just see if you can't scrape up five dollars by next week, just to cheer them along, you know. One of the stablemen who had not gone out Henderson, by name, worked at Billy's stables. Despite the urging of the bosses to eat and sleep in the stable like the other men, Henderson had persisted in coming home each morning 
to his little house around the corner from Saxon's on Fifth Street. Several times she had seen him swinging along defiantly, his dinner pail in his hand, while the neighborhood boys dogged his heels at a safe distance and informed him in yapping chorus that he was a scab and no good. But one evening, on his way to work, in a spirit of bravado, he went into the pile-driver's home, the saloon at Seventh and Pine. There it was his mortal mischance to encounter Otto Frank, a striker who drove from the same stable. Not many minutes later, an ambulance was hurrying Henderson to the receiving hospital with a fractured skull, while a patrol wagon was no less swift carrying Otto Frank to the city prison. Maggie Donahue it was, eyes shining with gladness, who told Saxon of the happening. Served him right to the dirty scab, Maggie concluded. But his poor wife, was Saxon's cry. She's not strong. And then the children. She'll never be able to take care of them if her husband dies. And serves her right, the damned slut. Saxon was both shocked and hurt by this Irish woman's brutality. But Maggie was implacable. "'Tis all she or any woman deserves that'll put up living with a scab. What about her children? Let em starve, and her man a taken the food out of other children's mouths. Mrs. Olson's attitude was different. Beyond passive sentimental pity for Henderson's wife and children, she gave them no thought, her chief concern being for Otto Frank and Otto Frank's wife and children, herself and Mrs. Frank being full sisters. If he dies, they will hang Otto, she said. And then what will poor Hilda do? She has varicose veins in both legs, and she can never stand on her feet all day and work for wages. And me, I cannot help. Ain't Carl out of work, too? Billy had still another point of view. It will give the strike a black eye, especially if Henderson croaks, he worried, when he came home. They'll hang Frank on record time. Besides, We'll have to put up a defense, and lawyers charge like Sam Hill. They'll eat a hole in our treasury you could drive every team in Oakland through. And if Frank hasn't been screwed up with whiskey, he'd never have done it. He's the mildest, good-naturedest man, sober, you ever seen. Twice that evening, Billy left the house to find out if Henderson was dead yet. In the morning, the papers gave little hope and the evening papers published his death. Otto Frank lay in jail without bail. The Tribune demanded a quick trial and summary execution, calling on the prospective jury manfully to do its duty and dwelling at length on the moral effect that would be so produced upon a lawless working class. It went further, emphasizing the salutary effect machine guns would have on the mob that had taken the fair city of Oakland by the throat. All such occurrences struck at Saxon personally. Practically alone in the world, save for Billy, it was her life and his, and their mutual love life that was menaced. From the moment he left the house to the moment of his return, she knew no peace of mind. Rough work was afoot, of which he told her nothing, and she knew he was playing his part in it, on more than one occasion she noticed 
fresh broken skin on his knuckles. At such times he was remarkably taciturn, and would sit in brooding silence or go almost immediately to bed. She was afraid to have this habit of recitance grow on him, and bravely she bid for his confidence. She climbed into his lap and inside his arms, one of her arms around his neck, and with the free hand she caressed his hair back from the forehead and smoothed out the moody brows. "'Now listen to me, Billy boy,' she began lightly. "'You haven't been playing fair, and I won't have it. No.' She pressed his lips shut with her fingers. "'I'm doing the talking now, and because you haven't been doing your share of the talking for some time. You remember we agreed at the start to always talk things over. I was the first to break this when I sold my fancy work to Mrs. Higgins, without speaking to you about it, and I was very sorry. I am still sorry, and I've never done it since. Now it's your turn. You're not talking things over with me. You are doing things you don't tell me about. Billy, you're dearer to me than anything else in the world. You know that. We're sharing each other's lives, only just now there's something you're not sharing. Every time your knuckles are sore, there's something you don't share. If you can't trust me, you can't trust anybody. And besides, I love you so that no matter what you do, I'll go on loving you just the same. Billy gazed at her with fond incredulity. Don't be a pincher, she teased. Remember, I stand for whatever you do. And you won't buck against me, he queried. How can I? I'm not your boss, Billy. I wouldn't boss you for anything in the world. And if you'd let me boss you, I wouldn't love you half as much. He digested this slowly and finally nodded. And you won't be mad? With you? You've never seen me mad yet. Now come on and be generous and tell me how you hurt your knuckles. It's fresh today. Anybody can see that. All right, I'll tell you how it happened. He stopped and giggled with genuine, boyish glee at some recollection. It's like this. You won't be mad now. We gotta do these sort of things to hold our own. Well, here's the show. A regular moving picture, except for talking. Here's a big rube coming along, hayseed, sticking out all over, hands like hams and feet like Mississippi gunboats. He'd make half as much again as me in size, and he's young, too. Only he ain't looking for trouble, and he's as innocent as... Well, he's the innocentest scab that ever come down the pike and bumped into a couple of pickets. Not a regular strike-breaker, you see. Just a big rube that read the boss's ads and come a-humpin' to town for the big wages. And here's Bud Struthers and me coming along. We always go in pairs that way, and sometimes in bigger bunches. I flag the rube. Hello, says I, looking for a job. You bet, says he. Can you drive? Yep. Four horses? Show me to him, says he. No josh now, says I. You sure wanting to drive? That's what I come to town for, he says. You're the man we're looking for, says I. Come along and we'll have you busy in no time. You see, Saxon, we can't pull it off there. 
because there's Tom Scanlon, you know, the red-headed cop, only a couple of blocks away, and pipping us off, though not recognizing us. So away we go, the three of us, Bud and me, letting that boob, to take our jobs away from us, I guess, nip. We turned into the alley, back of Campbell's grocery. Nobody in sight. Bud stopped short, and the rube and me stopped. I don't think he wants to drive, says Bud, considering, and the rube says, quick, you bet your life I do. You're dead sure you want that job, I says. Yes, he's dead sure. Nothing's going to keep him away from that job. Why, that job's what he's come to town for, and we can't lead him to it too quick. My friend, says I, it's my sad duty to inform you that you've made a mistake. How's that, he says. Go on, I says. You're standing on your foot. And honest to God, Saxon, the gink looks down at his feet to see. I don't understand, says he. We're going to show you, says I. And then, biff, bang, bingo, swat, suey, kerslam, bango, blam, fireworks, fourth of July, kingdom come, blue lights, skyrockets, and hellfire, just like that. It don't take long when you're scientific and trained to tandem work. Of course it's hard on the knuckles, but say, Saxon, if you'd seen that rube before and after, you'd thought he was a lightning change artist. Laugh? You'd have busted. Billy halted to give vent to his own mirth. Saxon forced herself to join with him, but down in her heart was horror. Mercedes was right. The stupid workers wrangled and snarled over jobs. The clever masters rode in automobiles and did not wrangle and snarl. They hired other stupid ones to do the wrangling and snarling for them. It was men like Bert and Frank Davis and Chester Johnson and Otto Frank, like Jelly Belly and the Pinkertons, like Henderson and all the rest of the scabs, who were beaten up, shot, clubbed, or hanged. Ah, the clever ones were very clever. Nothing happened to them. They only rode in their automobiles. You big stiffs, the rube snivels as he crawls to his feet at the end, Billy was continuing. You think you still want that job, I ask? He shakes his head. Then I read him the riot act. There's only one thing for you to do, old hoss, and that's beat it. Do you get me? Beat it. Back to the farm for you. And if you come monkeying around town again, we'll be real mad at you. We was only fooling this time. But next time we catch you, your own mother won't know you when we get done with you. And say, you ought to seen him beat it. I'll bet he's going yet. And when he gets back to Milpitas or Sleepy Hollow, or wherever he hangs out, and tells how the boys does things in Oakland, it's dollar to donuts, there won't be a rube in this district that come to town to drive if they offered him ten dollars an hour. It was awful, Saxon said, then laughed well-simulated appreciation. But that was nothing, Billy went on. A bunch of the boys caught another one this morning. They didn't do a thing to him. My goodness gracious, no. In less than two minutes, he was the worst wreck they ever hauled to the receiving hospital. The evening papers gave the score. Nose broken. Three bad scalp wounds, front teeth out, 
a broken collarbone, and two broken ribs. Gee, he certainly got all that was coming to him. But that's nothing. Do you want to know what the Frisco Teamsters did in the big strike before the earthquake? They took every scab they caught and broke both his arms with a crowbar. That was so he couldn't drive, you see. Say the hospitals are filled with them, and the Teamsters won that strike, too. But is it necessary, Billy, to be so terrible? I know they're scabs, and that they're taking the bread out of the striker children's mouths to put in their own children's mouths, and that it isn't fair and all that, but just the same. Is it necessary to be so terrible? Sure thing, Billy answered confidently. We just go to throw the fear of God into them, when we could do it without being caught. And if you're caught, then the union hires the lawyers to defend us, though that ain't much good now, for the judges are pretty hostile, and the papers keep hammering away at them to give stiffer and stiffer sentences. Just the same, before this strike's over, there'll be a whole lot of guys a-wishin' they'd never gone scabbin'. Very cautiously, in the next half hour, Saxon tried to feel out her husband's attitude, to find if he doubted the rightness of the violence he and his brother Teamsters committed. But Billy's ethical sanction was rock-bedded and profound. It never entered his head that he was not absolutely right. It was the game. Caught in its tangled meshes, he could see no other way to play it than the way all men played it. He did not stand for dynamite and murder, however. But then the unions did not stand for such. Quite naive was his explanation that dynamite and murder did not pay. That such actions always brought down the condemnation of the public and broke the strikes. But the healthy beating up of a scab, he contended, the throwing of fear of God into a scab, as he expressed it, was the only right and proper thing to do. Our folks never had to do such things, Saxon said finally. They never had no strikes nor scabs in those times. You bet they didn't, Billy agreed. Them was the good old days. I'd like to live then. He drew a long breath and sighed. But them times will never come again. Would you have liked living in the country, Saxon asked. Sure thing. There's lots of men living in the country now, she suggested. Just the same. I noticed them a-hiking the town to get our jobs, was his reply. End of section 26